Welcome back to the Manly Saints Project, by me, Hugh Hunter. We live in a world that struggles to understand the virtues of manliness. Our culture doesn't provide young men, or any men for that matter, with a lot of positive male role models. When I became a Catholic, I wanted to show how the saints could be manly role models for us. My weekly exploration of manly saints became the Manly Saints Project. If you enjoy my work, please consider signing up and supporting me on Substack, or click the links in the show notes to buy me a beer. Now, let's meet this week's Manly Saint. Join me today as we learn about citizenship from a saint who lived like a wild beast. Name, Anufrius. Status, saint, life, 4th century A.D., feast, June 12th. The beautiful early 15th century Spanish altarpiece, the trinity adored by all saints, shows row upon row of saints adoring God. Saints are lined up on the left and right panels of the triptych, facing God in the center. But if you take a close look at the back of one row, second column from the bottom, on the left-hand side, there is a saint who is completely naked and covered in hair. Who is this naked wild man, and how did he make it into the communion of the saints? This question takes us back into the strange world of the Desert Fathers. Our story takes place in the 4th century AD. By then, the Desert Fathers were already well established. For about 150 years, Men and a few women had felt a calling to go to the desolate places around the Nile in Egypt and seek God in silence and solitude. Over time, they became known as holy men and as fathers, or Abbas. Take, for example, Abba Aaron. He had been a Roman soldier, until, walking along a road alone, he realized he was being stalked by a lion. Aaron knew he was very likely going to die, and with death staring him in the face, he suddenly felt the call of the monastic life. He prayed, saying that if he survived, he would go into the desert and be a monk. The lion sprang on him, but to Aaron's own surprise, he killed it with a thrust of his spear. Aaron took his vow seriously. He rode into a nearby village and sold what he had, buying a simple robe and traveling into the desert. There he endured a life of suffering, mortifying his body. In the day he prayed where it was hottest. In the night he prayed where it was coldest. As Aaron suffered in the imitation of Christ, his saintliness grew. He helped the locals, healing them, teaching them, defending the poor, even saving the odd donkey and camel. On one occasion, a fisherman rushed into Abba Aaron's home. His young son, he said, his only son, had gotten tangled in their nets and been pulled underwater. The boy was gone. Was there anything Abba Aaron could do? Go back, Abba Aaron told the fisherman. I believe you will find your son sitting in the boat. When the fisherman got back, there was the little boy, safe and sound in the boat. His father asked him what had happened, and the boy explained that he had been pulled down, all tangled up in the net. Just as he had run out of air, a shining man had reached down into the water and pulled him up 
and deposited him into the boat. Eventually, Abba Aaron would take on a student named Isaac. Isaac, too, had felt the call. He wandered until villagers told him there was a holy man and healer nearby. Isaac tracked Abba Aaron by his footprints and found him standing in the sun with a large rock hanging from his neck. Where are you going, my son, in this place? asked Abba Aaron. And Isaac said to him, Forgive me, my father, for I am lost. He said to Isaac, Come, sit down, my son. Indeed, you are not lost. Rather, you have found the good path. The reason we know what we know about Abba Aaron is that, long after his death, his one-time student, Abba Isaac, spoke to an Egyptian traveler by the name of Papnut, or, as we Latinize it, Papnutius. Although we know that there was such a traveler, Papnut is such a common Egyptian name that there are at least ten candidates for the real Papnutius, which makes it hard to be sure exactly when he traveled into the desert. Tim Vivian argues that our Papnutius likely traveled out toward the end of the 4th century AD. At any rate, Papnutius tells us that he went into the farthest reaches of the desert. He was a monk himself, but he wanted to meet the desert fathers who lived in the furthest parts of the wasteland. It was a dangerous journey, since it was not easy to walk, as Abba Aaron might have said, the good path. The little caves in which the desert fathers lived were separated by extremely hostile terrain, which could kill you through heat or cold. Lions and hyenas hunted humans on land, and crocodiles often took those who came too close to the water. The bandits and murderers who preyed on Egyptian settlements close to the Nile made their homes in the desert. The danger was more than physical. When Isaac was still relatively new to the desert, staying with Abba Aaron, he was woken up by roaring. He shook Abba Aaron awake in a panic, telling him that there were lions. The old desert father told him to listen more closely. These weren't lions, but only things that could appear as lions. When Isaac really listened, he could make out the demonic voices calling for the death of the two desert fathers. He and Abba Aaron prayed, and the demons left their valley. It's interesting to note that when Winifred Blackman went to interview Egyptian peasants in the area in the early 20th century, they also assured her that the desert was crawling with evil spirits, as they then called them, Afrits. These were the dangers that Paphnutius risked because he wanted to know how far out the community of desert fathers actually went. He traveled into the deep desert, far from the villages near where a father like Abba Aaron made his home. After days of travel, he finally found a cave containing a desert father. The man was sitting inside, perfectly still. He didn't acknowledge Paphnutius, who shook him by the shoulder, only to have the arm come away in a cloud of dust. He had been dead for a long time. Finally, after more travel, Paphnutius met a living man. The man's name was Timothy, he said. He had come to this distant place from Luxor. He was a monk there too, living in community with other monks. But he had fallen into sin. He had had an affair with a local nun. The affair had lasted six months until, overcome by guilt, Timothy had decided to go to the furthest desert. The effort had almost killed him, he told Paphnutius. But he had been visited by an angel, appearing as a shining man, 
who had healed him. All that was thirty years ago. Paphnutius asked if he might stay with Timothy to become his student, but Timothy shook his head. You are not strong enough to resist the attacks of the demons. And so, Paphnutius continued out along the path. Timothy gave him his blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you from the snares of the devil, and may he always set you on all his good paths so that you flee to the holy ones. Paphnutius goes on. Finally, he comes to a mountain, and when he has climbed it, he sees a frightening sight. Below him on the path is a wild man. The man has grown out his hair and beard, and he's naturally hairy, so it's as though he has a pelt. He has a few leaves over his groin to cover his genitals. At first, Paphnutius is frightened that this is what we would call a Sasquatch, a wild man of the forests. But it turns out the wild man can talk, and he calls to Paphnutius. Come down to me, holy man. I too am a man of the desert, like yourself. I live in the desert on account of my sins. Paphnutius breathes a sigh of relief and clambers down. The man is old but remarkably strong, and they walk back several miles to the man's house as Paphnutius learns his story. The man's name is Onufrius, another Egyptian. He tells Paphnutius that for sixty years he has been living on the very border of Egypt, where other desert fathers fear to tread. I walk in the mountains like a wild beast, he says. Over the years, all his clothes have worn out, and he hasn't had any need to cover himself because he's the only man there. It began, Onufrius says, sixty years earlier, when he was a junior monk in a community near Luxor. In reading the scriptures, he had been struck by the figure of John the Baptist. Wasn't John the Baptist a model he should follow? His superiors didn't discourage this kind of thinking, and eventually, Onufrius set out to follow this vocation. When he went out, though, he was almost turned back by a strange sight. Right in front of him was a spot of shining brightness. Onufrius thought God was telling him to go home until the brightness spoke to him. I am the angel who has dwelled with you and walked with you since you were a child. The light is in front of him, the angel explains, precisely because Onufrius is headed in the right direction. So, Onufrius walked out into the deep desert, following whatever paths seemed good to him. This apparently random wandering brings Onufrius to the helm of an old desert father. The man has been waiting for him. Onufrius spends some time learning from the man, who wants to make sure he understands the hidden and fearful fighting that takes place in the desert. When he is certain that Onufrius understands that the role of the Desert Fathers is to preserve the world in prayer, he walks Onufrius out to a small hut which seems to have been waiting for him. It is where Onufrius would spend the next sixty years. Onufrius's approach was one of radical trust in God. He had taken to heart Jesus' commandment to not worry about what you will eat or wear. His own hair was clothing enough for him. Outside his hut, he had found that there was a palm tree 
that unfailingly grew 12 bunches of dates every year, precisely enough to feed him. Later traditions have added all sorts of details to the story. One has it that Onufrius was a scholar, studying law and philosophy before becoming a hermit. Another has it that Onufrius was the son of the king of Persia, and he gave up everything for the love of God. Even without any of this, Onufrius offers us a picture of manly sainthood. He's manly for facing the many dangers of the desert, but he's also an example of the transcendent potential of man. Onufrius seems to have one foot already in the next world. For, as Paphnutius speaks to him, Anufrius explains that he's not really alone. Paphnutius wonders how he can possibly receive the Eucharist, so far from civilization, and Anufrius tells him that there is an angel who brings it every week. He's quite matter-of-fact about it, explaining that the angel basically does the rounds for all the truly distant desert fathers. The angel isn't his only source of company. Anufrius says he frequently has visions of the saints. Whenever he's struck by his solitude, he finds encouragement in their presence. This information can help us unlock a riddle in the rather long title that Paphnutius gives to his account. It's called The Life, in Greek, Bios, and Ascetic Practice, in Greek, Politeia, of our Holy Father, Abba Nofrius the Anchorite, who was glorious in every way, and who ended his life on the 16th of Pound in the peace of God. Bless us. Amen. Tim Vivian points out that the use of politeia, which usually refers to something political or social and comes from the Greek for city, polis, is a strange choice to describe a man who spent 60 years without seeing another human being. Paphnutius thinks he's going to the edge of the Roman world to find people who are truly solitary. But what he discovers is a different kind of community. Saint Onufrius might remind us a bit of the Greek philosopher Diogenes. For philosophical reasons, Diogenes pursued a life in accordance with nature, which he thought meant a life of bare subsistence. Diogenes ate what he could forage and lived inside an old wine jug. When someone asked him about his city of origin, Diogenes answered that he was cosmopolites, a citizen of the cosmos. Unfortunately today, the word cosmopolitan has come to refer to a certain political class of the very wealthy and powerful. Diogenes didn't mean that he was part of the jet set, of course. He meant that wherever there were wise men, he was at home. As is often the case, philosophy provides the outline which Christianity can fill with living color. Anufrius is a citizen of the cosmos, and his politeia, his practice, is a kind of citizenship. But he's not a member of a conceptual city of the wise. He's a member of an actual city that exists where no city should be able to exist, in the hostile desert. Yes, the desert is dangerous, full of robbers, lions, hyenas, and crocodiles. Yes, demons wait out in the emptiness of the desert. But the saints walk confidently through this wasteland because they are following paths provided by the providence of God. Their city is an artifact that could only exist through God's immense power and unfathomable love for his creations. That is what allows what Abba Timothy calls the good paths to intersect at just the right moment. 
And if this city of the saints can emerge in the desert, why not in the midst of the crooked reality of our lives? Paphnutius asks Anufrius whether he can stay on as his student. Like Timothy before him, Abba Anufrius turns Paphnutius down. He can see that Paphnutius has a different path ahead of him. Paphnutius, though, is welcome to stay for dinner. The two eat together, and then, as the night falls, they go to sleep. In the morning, Paphnutius is shocked to see his host. Whereas the day before he was spry and healthy, he now looks like a man at death's door. Anufrius, though, has been expecting this. He prays, and then lies down on the ground to die. As he watches the holy man's death, Paphnutius realizes his own role in the story. He, too, has been walking the desert paths. He was never the spectator he imagined himself to be. God has brought him into the midst of this strange and holy community at just the right moment to meet this man, hear his story, and bury his body. The story that Paphnutius would tell ensured that St. Onufrius would be remembered. Churches dedicated to the wild saint sprang up around Egypt. By the 7th century, Pacentius of Coptos was exhorting pilgrims to try to be a little more reverent and for goodness sake stop flirting with each other when they visited the shrine of St. Onufrius. Soon the story would spread to Europe, where St. Onufrius was often drawn as if he was a woodwose, a European Sasquatch. But to my way of thinking, it's not the wildness of St. Onufrius that is most interesting. It's his invitation to enter into the city of the saints. And Abba Onufrius has a final piece of good news. The doors and windows of the city of the saints open into the very city of God. As Paphnutius was burying Onufrius's body, he was suddenly surprised by a burst of noise. He could hear singing and rejoicing as angelic voices welcomed St. Onufrius home. And then, as suddenly as it had begun, the noise stopped, as if the window had swung shut again. Paphnutius had learned the lesson of the deep desert. It was time to follow the path home. <laughs>